0: God, you indeed are great, and it is because of you uh, that we can sing, because you sent your Son, who lived for us, died for us, was buried for us, rose again. And then you called us. You called us by name. You gave us faith to believe, and and we confessed you as Lord. and, And now we follow after you, and we look forward to this next year to change and grow from one degree of glory to another, as we behold the face of Jesus Christ. And so I pray this morning you would help us to do that as we open your word and learn from the words of Luke and from the words of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, welcome back to Bethel and welcome to 2023. I'm just curious, how many of you stayed up all night long? You have not been to bed yet. There's a couple actually raise raised their hands. How many of you went to bed actually pretty much on time, regular time? Yeah, that was me. How many of you wish you would have went to bed at regular time? Yeah, all right. Well, the ushers have toothpicks. They can bring them around uh, if you need them this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to pick up now. We took a couple weeks off uh, to look at Christmas. And now we're going to jump back into our verse-by-verse study through the gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 7 this morning. Jesus has just finished Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we often refer to it as. And he closed Luke chapter 6 with this stark reminder that there's really only two ways to live. You can either build on the foundation of the life and words of Jesus Christ and then stand strong through the storms of life or you can fail to do so and your life will collapse in the end. Simply put, we could, we could narrow it down to this. Jesus is Lord of your life or he's not. He's either Lord of everything in your life or not. You either believe in him by faith, and you, and you d- demonstrate that belief in right obedience, or you ignore the commands of Jesus and live life however you want. Those are really your only two choices. I'm always interested to watch uh, religious patterns in America. It's kind of fascinating if you follow some of the trends. And back in January of 21, so this is about two years ago now, they'll probably be coming out with a new one again soon, uh, the Pew Research Center noted that roughly 63% of Americans identify as Christians. That's down from 77% about a decade ago, so that trend is not going in in a great direction. But 63% of Americans uh, claim to be Christians. The other side of that then, 28% of Americans identify as nuns, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. No religious affiliation, uh, no identification with any organized religion. They would describe themselves as nothing in particular when it comes to religion. They would check the box that says none when it comes to religion. Here's what's fascinating about that. Of that 28% that identify as nuns, only 4% of those are atheists. Which if you translate that then, that means that the other 24% of the nuns are not particularly antagonistic toward God. In fact, they might think that Jesus was a nice guy. They might even appreciate his care for the poor, uh, his help for the marginalized, but they don't follow him as Lord. They they reject his institution, the church. And often it boils down to this. They reject the authority of Jesus. It's really where it ends. They, re, they reject the authority of him. They'll, they'll point out the kindness of Jesus. They'll make a case for the social justice of Jesus. But when Jesus begins to encroach upon their pet sins they'll quickly set him aside because they don't want the authority of Jesus in their life. His authority is disregarded. One commentator said it like this, nuns may feel friendly toward Jesus, but Jesus may not yet actually be their friend. This morning, as we work our way through this text, we're going to come across a guy who recognized the authority of Of Jesus. And by faith, he believed in that. He trusted in that. So I want you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Here goes. After he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus has just finished his sermon on the mount And and, and he's now entered into Capernaum. Capernaum is a, a little village town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. When you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus actually spent a lot of time in this little town, a lot of significance there. Peter and Andrew live in this town and Jesus lived with them for a little while. It was in Capernaum where Jesus paid the temple tax, if you remember that story. And Jesus even did many miraculous works here in the town of Capernaum. But it was later that Jesus actually condemns Capernaum because they refused to believe in him and believe in his works. And he said, actually, Capernaum will be worse off than Sodom uh, because of their unbelief. So it's a familiar town in the pages of, of scripture. And as Jesus enters into this village, he's approached uh, by some folks who, uh, on behalf of a centurion with a sick servant. A centurion, you might know, is the commander of 100 soldiers. It's the same root word uh, that we use to get our word century, which is 100 years. The, the root word is 100. A centurion had authority over 100 soldiers. It was the smallest unit in the Roman army. Centurions were called the backbone of the army because they were responsible for keeping discipline among the ranks. They inspected all the arms. They, they were the commanders of their units uh, in the camp and in the field and they commanded also the auxiliaries that supplied the, the Roman army empires. Now we know from history that there were no Roman forces in Capernaum until at least AD 44. So that's after this story. So these, uh, this centurion uh, is likely part of a soldiery uh, along the lines of, of the Roman government where Herod Antipas uh, ruled and governed. Uh, he maybe had a non-military uh, capacity, but it's clear that this centurion is a Gentile. He's, he's definitely not a Jew. Centurions were of good reputation most of the time in the New Testament. In fact, we see centurions mentioned often uh, across the pages of the Gospels. If you remember, there was a centurion at the crucifixion of Jesus. And he looked and he said, surely this was this man was the son of God. Cornelius was a centurion in, in the book of Acts. And he was described as a devout and God-fearing man held in high regard by all the Jews. When Paul was being transported to Rome on trial, he was accompanied by a centurion named Julius, and Julius treated Paul very kindly. So centurions mentioned in the New Testament are are uniformly spoken of in terms of praise, and this centurion is no exception. This centurion was desperately concerned, we find out, about one of his servants who is sick. Matthew tells us that the servant is lying paralyzed at home and he's suffering terribly. We don't know exactly what was going on with the servant, but perhaps he had extreme trouble breathing because of some type of paralysis. And now he finds himself on the brink of death. So this centurion sends this message. When you and I think of centurions, often we think of centurions or even Roman soldiers as merely killing machines, right? Uh, How many times do you think about uh, a church drama? In fact, we had one here not too long ago uh, through our living nativity and Roman soldiers and centurions are always pictured as the bossy ones. They're stern, they're mean. They're shouting orders. They're whipping people with sticks and beating people. And those things did occur. But there's also this kind side of centurions that shines through in the New Testament. And this centurion was worried about his servant. Verse 2 tells us that this servant was highly valued. Not highly valued because of his production capabilities, but he was highly valued because he was loved by the centurion. Down in verse 7, the centurion uses a different word for servant, a word that means a young lad or a young girl. And so we can suppose that this servant was a young person, dearly beloved by the centurion. And it was out of a deep concern and a heart of love that this centurion is trying to find a cure for the disease that seems intent on taking the life of his young servant. And this centurion has heard about Jesus, which is not a stretch since the news about Jesus seems to just fly across the Uh, Region, Jesus would often do a miracle and he would tell people, now keep this quiet. Don't say anything about this. And they would do just the opposite. They would go and they would just tell everybody they knew. And so uh, the fame of Jesus is spreading much faster than the feet of Jesus are even moving. And so this centurion gathers together some of his Jewish elder buddies and he sends them to Jesus asking if Jesus would come and heal his dying servant. Now, normally, Jews and Romans clashed. They normally didn't like each other very much. Jews despised the Romans, especially the soldiers, because they were the ones who enforced the Roman oppression. They were the ones that kept the Jews from exercising all of the civil law that they believed that they had the authority to uh, to enact. And so they normally didn't like the Roman soldiers, but this was an exception. Why? Why do these Jewish elders do the bidding of this centurion? Well, look down at verses 4 and 5. They rather like this guy. Why? Well, he is worthy, they say, to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. This centurion had a high regard for the Jewish nation and apparently was a huge benefactor for the construction of the synagogue there in Capernaum. Now, It's not incidental that Jesus has already visited this synagogue. Back in chapter four of Luke, we read that he had cast a demon out of a man in the middle of a worship service in that very synagogue. The centurion, we're not told, we're not told that he's a God worshiper, but rarely would a man have undertaken all that is involved in building a synagogue without some interest in the god who would to be worshiped there and so i tend to believe that this centurion while maybe not a proselyte of uh, to judaism nevertheless feared the god of israel and notice what the jewish elders say and this is important because notice how they word this and how they make their plea to Jesus. Verse four, because this centurion loves their nation and built their synagogue, catch this, he deserves your help, Jesus. Look what they say verse four. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Jews throughout the New Testament had a knack for pointing to the externals as justification for the reward of God. They would often look at the externals and they would say, it's because of these things that God should reward you. And they would spend their lives measuring and comparing their actions against the actions of others. And Jesus was often criticizing their propensity to elevate themselves as they looked at other people's sin. In fact, Jesus called them out one time. He called out the Pharisees in a parable that he told. And, and you can hear just this works-based justification dripping from this prayer. Listen what the Pharisees in, in Jesus' parable said in Luke 18. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, right? They're looking at others, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, the Pharisee says, fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. They're always looking at the externals. These elders in Luke 7 do the exact same thing with the actions of the centurion. Now, to be fair, is anything wrong with what the centurion did for them? Of course not. Totally fine. In fact, it's commendable. But are his actions what determine his worthiness to have an audience with the master healer of the universe? Let's find out. Look at verse 6. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Apparently, the centurion has changed his mind. Because initially, he sent some of his Jewish acquaintances to ask Jesus to come to his house. Now, he is sending some of his close friends with a different message. And notice what he says. First, he acknowledges the rightful title of Jesus. He addresses him as Lord. Lord, do not trouble yourself. He acts accurately sees Jesus as the master, the ruler, the sovereign one. This isn't some random title of respect that the centurion is just throwing out there. It is his acknowledgement of the true person of Jesus. He calls him Lord. Secondly, he acknowledges his unworthiness. Of Jesus to come. The Jewish elders told Jesus, Jesus, you need to come. He, This guy is worthy. And the centurion, on the other hand, says, I am not worthy. If Jesus, as a Jew, were to enter this Gentile home, Jesus would be ceremonially unclean The centurion knows that because he knows the customs of those he oversees. But what's more importantly is that when the centurion looks at his life as compared to the glory of Jesus, he rightly assesses his own merit and he concludes, I am not worthy. As the centurion reflects On the greatness of Jesus, on His power, on His exalted majesty, on His holiness, and on His willingness to come and help, the more ashamed of Himself He becomes, and He's convinced that His previous request is unnecessary. So great is this Christ. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Further, he adds in verse 7, I did not even presume to come to you. In other words, who am I? as compared to this exalted one, this personal incarnation of majestic authority, this all-embracing power and selfless love, this love that bridges every chasm and leaps over every obstacle of race and nationality and class and culture. Talk about humility. Imagine a Roman officer looking at a poor Jewish rabbi and saying, I am unworthy of that man. That was unheard of in this culture. This centurion was full on assessing himself like the tax collector did in Jesus' parable About the Pharisees in Luke 18, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This centurion was demonstrating the attitude of the prodigal son in Luke 15 when he said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What amazing meekness. What an amazing lack of pride. Regardless of, of the number of army stripes on the sleeve of this man's uniform, he recognized that Jesus, the rabbi, outranked him. Therefore, in verse 7, in the second half, the centurion says, just say the word and let my servant be healed. True faith realizes that God can heal apart from rituals, apart from special ointments, apart from touch, apart from financial gifts to the healer. The centurion realized that all Jesus needed to say was a single word. His faith in this man was absolute, and he knew that his power was unlimited. Even a single word from the Lord, spoken at a distance, could heal his servant because the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus. The centurion respected the authority of Jesus. And he knew that Jesus could exercise that authority in the same way that the centurion exercised his authority in the realm of Roman soldiers. Just speak, and it happens. Look at verse eight again. The centurion says, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes. I say to the one, come, and he comes. And I tell my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, I speak it, and it happens. He's saying, I can look at my soldiers, and I can say, go, or come. I can look at my servants, I can say, do this, and do that. And because I have been granted authority to do so by Rome, Then all of the Roman authority, all of the power and the weight of Roman military might stands behind me. And so when I say the word, it happens because I have all this authority. And the centurion looks at Jesus and he says, I recognize that you too. Stand under authority. You are under the authority of God, your father, and you have been given all of the rights to exercise that authority. Therefore, all you have to do, Jesus, is say the word. And when you say the word, the disease goes and healing comes and my servant is restored. So Jesus, just say the word. I believe In your authority, the power is in you. Nothing more is needed. When Jesus heard this, it says, he marveled at the centurion and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You know, there are only two times in all of the New Testament that Jesus marveled at people. One was this centurion. He marveled at his faith. And the other one was when he marveled at the people of Nazareth because they did not believe him. They did not have faith. That's it. Only two times did Jesus ever marvel at people. And so for Luke to record this here tells us the magnitude of what we're witnessing and to make absolutely sure that the people around understood how remarkable this was, Jesus turns to the crowds and he points out the significance. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Matthew, in his account of this story, adds these words in Matthew 8. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The thing at which Jesus marveled was the faith of this Gentile. Not even the people of God who had the law of God and the Son of God demonstrated the level of faith that this Gentile centurion did and that simply amazed Jesus. Remember that the the Jewish elders came first, they told Jesus, hey, you need to act because of all these external things that this centurion did. He, he loves our nation. He, he built us our, our synagogue. But what did Jesus look at? Jesus looked at this centurion's heart. He looked at the faith of this centurion. Listen, friends, being a Jew or being in some earthly authority, being a religious or or, or political leader, none of those qualifications matter when it comes to the kingdom of God. Jesus looks for one and only one quality in people. He looks for faith. The ability to believe who he is, Jesus, who he is, when you and I die, and I know we don't often want to think about death, especially on the first day of the year, uh, 2023, uh, but some of you might not be here with us next year at this time. I don't know. But when you and I die, you will not hand to the steward of heaven's gate an entry pass that has on it your corporate title or your 401k balance or your last name or your voter registration on it. You will not hand the steward of heaven's gate your charitable giving record or your fasting record or your prayer record. When you show up at heaven's gate, there is only one thing that will grant you entrance into heaven, faith in Jesus Christ. Are all of those other things important? Sure, they're important. But those are only outward expressions of a faith that exists internally in your heart. You must believe that Jesus is who he said he was. You must believe that he is the son of God. You must believe that Jesus lived a perfect life that he died on a cross as a substitute for your sin. You must believe that he was buried and that he rose again. You must repent of your sin, confess him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then from there on, you must deny yourself and you must live for him and him alone. I ran across this powerful statement. I'm reading Paul Miller's book right now called A Praying Life. I recommend the book to you. You would love it. He said this, and I quote, the great struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It is trying to discern and then disown my own. Friend, when you and I come to Jesus by faith, we then begin to die to ourselves die to my will, and we begin to live for him. By faith, I believe that his commands to me are good and for my good. Therefore, if I love him, I obey him. Will I do that perfectly? No, I won't. Which speaks even more to the greatness and kindness of Christ. Think about this. The greatness of Jesus appears from the fact that though the centurion waited until it was almost too late, His servant was almost dead. And though the centurion was not a Jew, but he belonged to a different ethnic group, and though the ground on which the Jewish elders pleaded, he is worthy, was doctrinally unsound, nevertheless, the master started at once to answer the request. And on top of that, When he hears the humility of the centurion, he even praises the centurion for his simple faith, a faith not of the centurion's own making, but even that had been a gift of God to him. Isn't Jesus amazing? I don't know about you, But my heart aches for the nuns of this world. One of the most exciting adventures that I got to take part of several years ago, uh, we started a life group here at Bethel, uh, and we invited primarily nuns to join Uh, Through business connections and through interpersonal contacts, we invited about eight or ten men and women to join our group. Most of them were not Christians yet. They weren't antagonistic against Christianity. They just didn't know much about Christianity, but they were willing to come and they were willing to explore and learn. I started our very first session together in that life group by holding up my Bible and I said, this is a Bible. And in this Bible, we learn about a person, a person of whom you must make a decision, whether you accept him by faith or whether you reject him. You cannot do both. And week by week, as we would meet together, we opened scripture together, and we actually walked through the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the Beatitudes, and we answered the most basic of Christian doctrinal questions for this group of nuns. Some of them eventually walked away from our group, content to remain nuns for the time, and I still pray for them. But some of the others actually dug in, and I remember one very poignant conversation with a middle-aged woman in our group. Her name was Susan, and at the end of our life group meeting one night, she said to me, you know, I'm starting to realize that this whole Christianity thing isn't about rules, it's about relationship. And I said, bingo. It's about a relationship in faith, in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that night I challenged Susan to believe in Jesus Christ. Two weeks after that meeting, we received the tragic news that Susan had died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And I cannot say for sure, but I would like to believe that Susan's walk of faith, as shaky and as immature as it was, perhaps began that last night in our life group. And my prayer is that somewhere between that final conversation I had with her and her appearance at heaven's gate, she humbled herself like the centurion and acknowledged the lordship of Jesus Christ. You still have time. Will you do that today? Will you by faith believe in this Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me, if you will. God, we have no idea what all we will face this coming year. And as Ryan said, some of us look back on 22 and perhaps had a wonderful year of births and weddings and excitement. And some of us look back on 22 and we had a tough year one where you uh, brought or allowed heartache into our lives. Or maybe you brought severe discipline in our lives and we had to face aspects of our own hearts that we didn't want to deal with until you brought it to light. But God, we thank you for all of those things because all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to to your purpose. And it is through all things, whether good or bad, that you conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we look at you and we say, you are a good God and you do good in our lives. And by faith, We believe that Jesus Christ came to do what we could not. We could not please you. Try as we might, we couldn't please you. Or maybe we just outright ignored you. And like the nuns of the world, we just rejected your authority. And you shone the light of Jesus Christ in our heart. You gave us faith to believe. You awakened our souls to the reality that we needed a Savior. And there stood this most beautiful Jesus We acknowledge our sin. We believe on him by faith. And now, and for the rest of 2023 and so on and so forth, we will make it our ambition to follow him, deny ourselves, allow you to change us and grow us from the inside out. And that our external fruit, while commendable, is not the basis on which you would judge us, uh, but it's our faith in you but that that fruit will come out, that it will be evident that we have good roots because we believe in a good Savior. We love you. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.